Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aaron Flam and today we're going to have a talk with Christina Hoff Summers. She is an American author, philosopher and feminist who have written extensively about the damaged cause to the feminist cause by socialist feminists. She is an author of several books on the subject, among them Who Stole Feminism, which came as early as 1994, and more of late The War Against Boys. If anyone would know where Swedish and American feminism intersect, to use the movement's own terminology, albeit correctly, it is her. I contacted Christina because I wanted to know what she knows about the Swedish feminist Yvonne Hildman, who is responsible for introducing what you might call the theory of the patriarchy, or to do a literal translation from the original Swedish, the gender system which introduces the Marxist idea of sex as class to Swedish academia and later government policy, or if she knows of any other exchange between American and Swedish socialist feminists. Which is a bit unfair, because Christina is interesting in her own right. She is a contributor to, among other publications, The Atlantic, and has already been derided in certain parts of the Swedish media for an article she had written there, which mentioned Sweden. Of course, they criticized it in Swedish, so there is no way that Christina would be able to know about it or reply. Anyway, these are just some of the things we talked about. Enjoy. Good evening, or good night, uh, because it's night here in Sweden. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism, uh, Professor Christina Hoff-Summers. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, so... Um, I don't want to label you because people are so sensitive about labels these days. Uh, how do you uh, define yourself? As in, I suppose, a dissident feminist. A dissident? I'm a feminist, yes, but I don't go along with the male bashing, the propaganda, the conspiracy theories about the patriarchy. I don't buy that. But I believe in equality. I believe in 
is certainly an equal opportunity that a woman's dignity opportunity should be the same as a man, as man's. I understand. And you, uh, you're a professor of philosophy. Yes. yes. Uh, and not now. I was for more than 20 years. And then I left for a think tank in Washington, D.C., the American Enterprise Institute. And it's sort of like a university, but I don't have to grade papers <laughs> uh, or attend many meetings. So it's uh, been quite liberating. Yeah, it sounds like a privileged position to be in. Yes. Yes. And how is Washington now? Is it warm? It's a beautiful day. It looks like Santa Barbara today. Okay. And yesterday and possibly tomorrow. So we're all surprised because it can be very muggy. If it, have you been to Washington? Yes, uh, once, a few years ago. But it was winter, I believe. Ah, uh, that's different. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, you started out in ethics. Yes. Uh, uh, what draw, drew you into uh, that uh, area? I just, uh, in graduate school, I became very interested in John Stuart Mill. I wrote my dissertation on some aspect of his theory. Uh, and I uh, taught a lot of ethics courses. And one day, early in the, well, I would say mid-1980s, the chair of my department asked me to teach a course in feminist theory. And I thought, well, I'm a feminist, and... A philosopher, fine. I sent away for the textbooks and spent a summer going through them. And I expected to find well-reasoned arguments for and against various topics of interest to women. I don't know, abortion, affirmative action, surrogate motherhood, the family. I, I was very surprised because in these textbooks, they were not arranged, you know, sort of point, counterpoint. They were mutually reinforcing. And, it, uh, and I to teach the course According to these texts, it to me seemed like indoctrination. So that's when I first became aware that something was amiss in, it was called women's studies then, now it's gender studies mostly. Yes, uh, I, rem I, I don't remember, I was too young to remember when it was women's studies, but uh, I've, re I've read about it. And w what year was this? 88. This was in and then, yeah. It was the summer of 88. I taught in the fall. And then and by December, I wrote a paper and went to the American Philosophical Association to uh, being critical of some of the uh, you know, very prominent theories of women's oppression. One was by, I remember, a woman named Alison Jagger. I was very critical of Jagger, of a, a woman named Ann Ferguson. Critical. And they came. Now, typically, when you go to the American Philosophical Association, People go there to argue. It's a very good way to test your theories, test your ideas with a crowd that is good at poking holes at them. So I was willing to have them poke holes in what I was saying, to be educated. Maybe I was missing something in these theories. and uh, But they did not do that. What they did was, um, I mean, some people said all sorts of things, but they were hissing and stamping their feet. And it was a group called the Society of Women in Philosophy. And later, the Chronicle of Higher Education wrote an article about what happened there because it was so unusual to hiss and stop feet. And it was sort of a struggle session. <laughs> and I was not <laughs> behaving properly. And then uh, we did not go out for drinks, as one often does, with, you know, those you argue with at the APA. I was excommunicated from a religion I did not know existed. Uh 
<clears throat> well, I grew up in it, so uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, and then you went on to write several books. I, I believe uh, uh, the first book uh, you wrote was "Who Stole Feminism." Yes. And that was about what? That was about the hijacking of a valiant, noble human rights movement. I mean, the liberation of women is one of the great chapters in the history of freedom. But the, that movement has been taken over, uh, and, and I mean mainly on campus and social media, by a, a fairly a radical group who believe in a lot of things that are just not sustainable. Their belief system, their, I mean, their, their worldview is very, very uh, dire, and it's almost as if the better things are for women, the more dire they are, the more full of anxiety. And it was so out of proportion to what was going on. What was going on, and I saw it in my classrooms, is that American women, and I think it's true if women in, in Western Europe for sure, were moving ahead in education, in the professions, with more choices on how to live their lives than, than any women in history. And in many cases, not merely achieving parity with men, but doing better than men. Certainly in education, even by the time I was writing Who Stole Feminism, women were moving ahead. And when you move ahead in education, that is the opportunity to move ahead everywhere. And where women want to move ahead, they have. They have now, as it turns out, women want many things. It appears we don't want to be men. Not most of us. Some do. <laughs> but most of us do not. And we organize our lives somewhat differently. But I think largely it is a matter of choice um, to the extent that anyone has choice. Um, and uh, that I thought the movement should move on to real issues. I didn't see how women were helped by uh, these, these grim theories about a patriarchy that happens not to exist. And I certainly didn't see how women were helped by misinformation, if you will, misinformation. And a lot of who stole feminism was correcting untruths about the wage gap, about they didn't call it rape culture then, but there was all of that propaganda was out there that instead of the women's moving, movement being about being equal to men, it was protecting us from them. Well, a small percentage of men are violent predators, but a majority of men are not. And so why take the worst case male and use him as the standard, which they often did. I understand. So I tried to correct that, yeah. And then you went on to write The War Against Boys. Yes. Where you argue uh, that um, education has uh, been rigged against boys, basically, right? That's right. How so? Exemplify, please. Starting with, in the United States, certainly as early as preschool, uh, little girls on average are developmentally just readier for school. They have better verbal skills and they're less inclined to uh, reject direction from the teacher. <laughs> Boys are problematic. They are known to be uh, engaged in a lot of rough and tumble play. Girls do it too. Boys do it a lot more. Girls, if you look at little girls, their play is often turn-taking games or theatrical imaginative games. And teachers like that, mothers do too. The way little boys play makes us nervous because there's a lot of mock fighting and sound effects. And so they come to school and their little girls, their characteristic style of play is the teacher approves it, encourages them to, you know, 
draw, you know, pictures about it and tell stories. Boys come in and they're, if they want to draw pictures about what they like, the teachers increasingly find that uh, offensive because they might draw, you know, a war or a, a, a monster devouring a city. <laughs> and we find little boys in American schools being punished, suspended, held back, all sorts of things uh, for the crime of being a typical boy. So basically what happened was they started pathologizing uh, normal behavior in men. Exactly. Now, I think boys have always been a challenge for teachers. And I think there's a lot of teachers who do like boys and can work with them beautifully. I've, I've found many of them. But in our schools of education, they are taught that the, the, the all the education is around how to meet the girls and help the girls and very little about boys. Boys are uh, on a back burner. And if, in fact, if they address them at all, it's, you know, how to pre prevent them from preventing girls from contributing to class discussion. Well, girls dominate most class discussions and they, they're more verbal and they're more cooperative. Little boys, even big boys, if you get into junior high and high school, they, a lot of them will sit in the back and want to, you know, play around with their friends. <laughs> and as I said, girls, I'm generalizing, but... Um, there's truth in the stereotypes. There are people who, you know, there are boys who are very good students and do everything the teacher says and do not like rough and tumble play. And there are girls who act just like the boys, but they are the exception. I'm talking about the rule. Yeah, I understand. Uh, so, because I've been a fan of yours, Christina, since 2012, when I read an article in The Atlantic of, that you had written. Yes. Uh, it was about uh, a Swedish, um, well, sort of a reprimand from a... Uh, the marketing agency, no, not marketing agency, that's not the, like, we have like a Bureau of Ethical Marketing. Right. And they had reprimanded Toys R Us for not having gender, gender neutral um, toy catalogs. Uh, they were marketing toys differently to boys and girls. And uh, you wrote this, and I quote now, Men and women can be different, but equal. And for most human beings, the differences are a vital source for meaning and happiness. Since when is uniformity a democratic ideal? That's what you wrote uh, at the end of a paragraph in that article. And, uh, well, um, you're not here now, but welcome to Sweden. Here is uniformity <laughs> a democratic ideal, because we're very consensus-seeking and conformist. Uh, and this... Um, leads to quite absurd outcomes sometimes. So how familiar are you with Sweden? Quite familiar. I've written about it. I admire it. I've, uh, I've been there a couple of times. And, you know, it's, a di it's different from the United States, but a very successful society, except for this obsession with eliminating the gender difference. You know, the, what you should do, is open all doors, and when it comes to children, give them a lot of toys and see what they want to play with, but most little boys are going to make stereotypical choices, and the choices they make, the choices the girls make, it's a critical part of their healthy development. They're developing skills, boys being more rambunctious, that rough-and-tumble play. I have my little dog here. She jumped up. This is Izzy, Isabella. Hello, Izzy. And I, I thought Izzy was a man, but now I see that. Well, well she's gender non-conforming, I'll tell you that. <laughs> she's uh, rough and tumble all the way. But um, it's very unhealthy. 
it may even interfere with children's, uh, in, you know, it quite likely interferes with children's interest in school if they're constantly, you know, being told that they, they're not, you know, meeting the standards of comportment. And little boys don't. We know this. And it's year after year. We have massive data showing it's mostly boys who get detention and held back or, you know, suspended or expelled it's beginning in preschool. I'm sure you didn't see the Swedish critique of your article. Uh, there's not much written about it, but we have this sort of a digital newspaper called Politism, which is uh, sponsored by the workers' movement. So it's more of a, well, you could call it an extreme leftist uh, media outlet. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and their uh, critique of your article, they didn't critique the science because you were unassailable when it came to science, but they, uh, they said you failed to show uh, that uh, trying uh, to uh, battle... Uh, gender norms in male children uh, harms them. That that you couldn't show that the social engineering experiment of the Swedish state was harmful in itself. They critiqued your critique of the social engineering because they said you couldn't show that the social engineering experiment of the Swedish state was harmful to the development of boys. Actually, I did give what I think is a very important example. Uh, there are two researchers at the University of Maine that were that did a very uh, you know classroom analysis of how many times does a teacher redirect play and you go in and try to stop the kids doing what they're doing, get them to do something else. What what they found is that it's almost always the boys that are redirected away from what they're what they want to do to something the teacher wants them to do, and these teachers pointed out that play is the basis of learning. And if the first experience for school for a little boy is disapproval, being pushed to do something he prefers not to do, and then when it comes to writing about your play, he put pen pencil to paper and wants to write about it. But it's, it's, as I said, if he writes about his video games or his, his battles, disapproved of and If he, a lot of times the girl played, they would notice the girls would be playing house and, or who gets to be princess or something, and then they would write about it. And so we might be interfering with just a, at this critical juncture where a child goes from play to writing stories to developing their verbal skills. And they were worried about this. So why is it, there should be more research? I think the burden of proof is on those who want to interfere and change the preferences of children at this level. The burden of proof is on them, but there is evidence that it's doing harm. No, I'm on your side, Christina, when it comes to this. Um, I live in a country where patriarchy is official doctrine. I mean, um, the state believes uh, in the theory of patriarchy, but you have some uh, problems with uh, the theory of patriarchy. There are patriarchal societies. We are not one of them, and Sweden is not one of them. A patriarchal society is one where women are not allowed to have power. Women have power in the United States. They have power in Sweden, as much power as they want. Yep. We have looked at women in politics. What they find is the problem is not that people won't vote for women. They will. People mainly vote for their party, so if she's in their party, they'll vote for her. There was a time in the distant past where there were people that were prejudiced, but not now. They can't find that. What they do find is fewer women than men are willing to run. 
And there was a very good study at a women's center at the, at the university of, at, at George Washington University. And, and they made, they did a study said girls just don't want to run. And they found that that was the problem is getting women. So that, that's a different problem. That's not patriarchy. That's not a person. That's, you may be introducing young women to more to how, you know, tell them about how you get into politics and so forth. But a lot of women seem to know that. They seem to know it in Sweden. <laughs> I um, Yeah, considering the fact that we have a feminist foreign policy, among other things, whatever that means, we, we're not quite sure ourselves what it means, but apparently we have one. Really? A, fem- a feminist foreign policy? <laughs> as soon as the Social Democrats uh, won last time, uh, they moved into the foreign policy department and said, now we have a feminist foreign policy. Uh, not quite sure what that means or what they're going to do about it. And also... Um, so we'll have, we'll have like consciousness-raising groups with, with terrorists. And, well, how do you deal with ISIS as a feminist? I would presume you have to deal with it just... The same way. Well, I I think in Sweden, if you label something feminist, then uh, it it becomes inherently good. Uh, So, for instance, in Stockholm a few years ago, uh, well, actually last winter, uh, they introduced uh, uh, feminist snow removal (laughs) or gender neutral snow removal because they had found statistically that more men drive cars and more women use the sidewalks. Uh, where they slip on ice and break their legs. So they uh, started sweeping sidewalks before roads, forgetting that uh, the reason we swipe the roads first is so that, well, fire trucks, ambulances, and police can reach, you know, uh, problems. And fuel and, yeah. (laughs) Yes. And it led to uh, just enormous chaos in the center of Stockholm. And then when uh, the policy turned into chaos, they tried to defend it and said, well, it wasn't really feminist. We just called it feminist. And then I was wondering, like, okay, so it wasn't feminist. Did you just call? Why? What what was? It's all uh, very, very strange. Um, Yeah, we've had that. It's almost as if people are looking for issues. So now that we have achieved basic equality... Where women have achieved equality, the uh, they have to find issues, and so people are saying, "Oh, it's not fair that men can go without wearing tops, but women have to wear blouses." Or air conditioning is is supposed to be. I've heard lately that air conditioning is sexist because women are colder in the office than men. I don't know. They're looking for these. In the meantime, this is what upsets me as an equity feminist. There are parts of the world where women don't have their basic rights. They haven't had two major waves of feminism. They haven't had so much as a trickle in Saudi Arabia and in, in places in Yemen and then, and then places like uh, Iran. It's a kind of 1984 for women. If you don't, you know, obey the rules, they have these virtue police going on, forced veiling. I mean, this is awful. Where are the feminists? These are the major issues uh, facing women and I think we should take what we've done and provide support and uh, encouragement to women's groups in these countries. There are wonderful equity feminists in Saudi Arabia, in Iran fighting a really dangerous battle and that's but no, we're here busy with fussing about you know gender issues and snow removal. So you think uh 
as the women's movement gained ground in the Western world and became almost equal to men, uh, women and some men still wanted, you know, to fight the good fight. And it's easier to fight that good fight or whatever you want to call it here where the battle is already won than it is in places like Iran or, or uh, uh, the rest of the Middle East. Yes, and that's probably because they don't want to accept responsibility. Women are responsible for their fate in free countries, uh, and, and free countries with egalitarian laws that both Sweden and the United States have. But most women have organized their lives, despite several generations of feminism. You still find that young women, on average, study different subjects in school. They're more interested in literature, psychology, social work. They, when they, when they're you know, very ambitious. They go and become heads of nonprofits where you do make less money. You might ha get more fulfillment. You might make more of a difference, but they do that. And so I, why not accept women for what they are, the choices that they make, and uh, move on? Well, They're I think most on. Swedish feminists would say that they choose these fields because of oppressive social norms. But... <laughs> If women know these possibilities, I mean, look, that argument might have held water in 1962. It's 2017. What are they talking about? And, and so they have some theory about how women are, have internalized these norms. Well, maybe they've internalized strange norms. I mean, you, you, at a certain point, we have to credit one another with free will. Uh, or we'll, you know, the philosophers have been debating whether or not people are free for thousands of years. We're not going to resolve that. So I say we just err on the side of respect of people and their agency. Yeah. But uh, they don't do it. <laughs> I think. And they'll never give up. They'll never give up. And you know, I I watched as the universities. There was a time where we had far more men in law schools and our colleges. Well, then women achieve parity. You would think that. These women's groups, the American Association of University Women, they fight for equality in education. You would think that they would close up shop and move on. No, they women were more women have now surpassed men in education, and they're more active than ever. They keep finding more obscure issues, hidden sexism, and now there's a a wealth of uh, advocacy research, sort of studies done by concernocrats, social scientists, where it was they already knew what they were going to prove. They just concocted an experiment, shaped it in a desirable way. And we have just a, a volumes and volumes of advocacy research claiming that something is true that is not true. I'm sorry to hear that. I have this uh, hunch or theory uh, that I'm pursuing this year in, in my work as a comedian, mm -hmm. as a serious comedian, Um, and uh, that Sweden is sort of ground zero uh, for this type of what you would call third wave feminism that I call socialist feminism. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you've heard of a professor of history from Sweden called Yvonne Hirdman. It rings a bell. So, Remind me what you said. Well, Yvonne Hirdman wrote a small pamphlet back in 1987 So this is a year before you uh, first uh, started noticing the strange changes within the feminist movement. Uh, and Yvonne Hildman wrote a pamphlet called The Gender System, Theoretical Reflections on the Social Subordin Subordination of Women. 
So this was in 1987. It wasn't really an academic paper. It wasn't even a theory. It was mainly raising questions. But what she did was uh, she took um, Mark's class pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. And then she threw out the classes and capitalism and the priests and the bourgeoisie and the working class. Oh, yeah. And she uh, uh, jammed in gender instead. Oh, that's it. That's women's studies. That's it. You've just described it. Yes. And, uh, and so this little paper was nothing. And then three years later, it got into an SOU. That is what we call a government official investigation. Now, these SOUs, uh, after a while, they can become policy, right? So... Uh, her little the gender system theoretical reflections on the social subordination of women, which is kind of a mouthful to say, uh, got into one of these SOUs. It was chapter three in 1990, colon 44. Uh, and from there, it got into every department of government, every agency. Uh, it got into schools from kindergarten because you have to understand Sweden um, is like the Dr. Mengele of social engineering. Like if anyone can do social engineering, it's the Swedes. They're extremely collectivist and conformist. So they, they love doing things together. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like it, it, we have something similar here that the feminist activists, there have been no, major intellectual breakthroughs coming from gender studies, women's studies. They have, who's, who, what genius have they produced? What classic? There are none, <laughs> but they're good networkers. You know, they're good at, you know, workshops and, and being uh, pests. And so they get their way. They wear people down. And I think in the universities, a scholar, a person like that, was she in a university? Yes. She she, professor she, she's prof professor emeritus at Stockholm university in history. Well, I, I mean, so, but she made her name promoting this theory yes. about the sex gender system and how we had to dismantle the system. Yes. Well, it, you know, it's, it, it, the problem is I'm sure some of her colleagues realized that it was non-falsifiable, this theory of society, and it, it wasn't anything. You couldn't really do anything with it except what she wanted done, whatever she and her colleagues wanted to do. But if you object... In Sweden, as a consensus society, that's considered, you know, uh, faux pas. Yes, a faux pas. In America, people do object, but I think a lot of men thought it was they did not because they they were it was kind of a misplaced uh, gallantry. Yes, and a lot of women who are not radical feminists or not even, but they they just wanted to do their work, and then they kind of thought, well, I don't want to make you know cross another woman because women were. In the beginning, when women were new, relatively new in certain departments, so women just did not criticize. So we, what we have is a body of information that has not been vetted, that has not gone through this. this Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. System of quality control that we have in, in the academy called peer review. So it looks to me, it seems to me that her theory was just accepted and then promoted uh, through pressure, uh, political pressure, personal pressure, psychological, and not through the kinds of channels it should have. People should have been free to contradict it and show that it relied on a Marxist analysis of society and, and that is problematic. <laughs> And known at every level to be confused and and not to lead to certainly not to lead to a better society. And yet she was given carte blanche because in that she was talking about women. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's actually quite amazing because she, uh, th- there was no. I I I I can't discern any pressure in any documents. This actually went through because of lack of opposition. There's been, I mean, the, the original paper, the concepts are ill-defined. Uh, they're not only unfalsifiable, they're unverifiable. And some of them are uh, since long been disproven by natural mm. science. Uh, okay. But it, it, it uh, got no opposition whatsoever. And it still has no opposition, no serious opposition in Sweden. This is official state policy now. And what happened is... We already had a grade gap between uh, boys and girls, like most countries do. I mean, you started measuring in, I think, the ni- 1940s, and already then girls uh, did better at most subjects except math and physics. So around 1990, her document goes into the Swedish state, and uh, it seeps down into from kindergarten and onwards. And now, 30 years later... Uh, we have the second largest grade gap between boys and girls in the world, and mm-hmm. it's accelerating. Um, we also have around uh, 12% of boys are diagnosed with ADHD, 6% of girls are diagnosed with ADHD. Um, but I wanted to ask you, do you know of any connections between American feminists, uh, intellectuals, academics, and Swedish feminists? Well, I think the Swedish feminists have been influential and even before the 80s in the, in the, at the United Nations. They've been promoting a kind of radical, basically a view that there's no, you know, any, any difference between men and women that favors men has to be because of discrimination. There can't be a benign explanation. And they can't accept that the, the sexes may be equal but different, which is what I believe. And they uh, just didn't allow that. So they already in international settings the Swedes were promoting this, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. They've been promoting it. And then, it, but it didn't, I think it got into the universities maybe with this professor uh, more officially. But before that, it goes way back. And there were other styles of feminism. Even feminists like Betty Friedan was more of my style of wanting equality. But she loved, she happened to love being, you know, lots of men, men being masculine, women being feminine. She wasn't, she didn't want a 
gender-neutral society, whatever that would be. There's never been one. There will never be one. And yet these people have the power to say that, you know, to deny reality. And year after year, you would think by now a parent of a boy and a girl would see the difference. And they don't. I mean, they, I don't know, the kids, I suppose, can be shamed into cooperating. But what you're saying is the boys just sort of uh, in school show that they're Needs are not being met if they're not. What boys need in school is not only more patience, but more effort on their literacy skills. And it takes, you know, and and, and for that, you probably have to give them books on topics they enjoy and not just books about, I don't know, uh, women and their struggles. We can't give them books about uh, uh, things that boys enjoy because, you know, uh, toxic masculinity. Right. Well, yes. that is a whole other thing that <laughs> I don't buy. Uh, again, that's what they do is they're, um, they've kind of created a, 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 what I would have to call female chauvinism. And I did not like male chauvinism. I've seen it and I don't like it. But, it, but the answer isn't female chauvinism. It's mutual respect and understanding. And the, the sexes are known to be wonderfully compatible and compliment, compliment one another. And I say that as a, a person who believes in absolute equality of opportunity, but don't be fooled into thinking that we're going to go um, in, in, the, in the pursuit of happiness. Men and women take somewhat different paths. It's yep. so obvious. Well, Swedes uh, are unique in more ways than they know themselves. I mean, they were one of the last countries in, in Europe to be christened this was only a thousand years ago. Uh, before that, they were hidden, and they've always had a very lax sexual moral, which personally I appreciate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Americans, uh, we, we, we appreciate that. <laughs> we yes, borrow and, that too. <laughs> and I also think the, the country was, is so geographically large and population, I mean, so scarce. So I guess you had to sleep around to, in your generation with whomever was close to you just to find out if you could, you know, find a partner. Uh, and, and get warm. <laughs> yes, and, and this, of course, uh, does, uh, doesn't really gel with most other uh, uh, cultures' view on, on uh, regulating sexuality between men and women. Um, but as I said, I, I actually prefer it to more Puritan societies. Uh, so... Um, I wanted uh, last fall. Uh, last fall, you were at the university tour, right? Yes. Uh, so was I. I was on a university tour. I tried to go around campuses in Sweden to do my stand-up, and I got 155 no's and five yeses. How did oh. How did you do? Uh, well, uh, at our campuses, students have clubs, and they're all kinds. And the the I'm, I'm more sort of libertarian feminist. And libertarian and conservative groups would invite me. And so they, the schools couldn't say no. I mean, they might have wanted to. But there were protests and students issued trigger warnings that even hearing me could trigger PTSD. And they accused me of, you know, if I, when I deny, for example, that women are being cheated out of 23 cents you know, every day, for the same work, a man is paid 23 cents more than a woman. It, this is just not true. 
And I don't know a serious economist who would claim that women earn less because employers are cheating them out of their salary. It's just not true. I mean, there may be pockets <laughs> of injustice, but the system of wages in terms of gender is is fair. And um, I, I show them. I take it apart and just show that men work more hours. They work at more dangerous jobs and they go into the higher paying fields. And if a woman would do the, if she works the same hours, and, and there are about 25 things that drive wages. It's also, are you willing to relocate? Are you willing to work strange hours? Are you, uh, as I said, willing to work outside? And there are all sorts of things that create, uh, the, you know, a salary. And when you do all the controls, the wage gap narrows to the point of vanishing. Well, I was at Oberlin College. They're all very privileged students, and they were they were very distressed that I was a wage gap denier, and they were holding up signs and carrying on. And one young woman, you know, was shocked that I thought she said, "Do you think it's fair that I'm studying drama?" And that I'm, I know I'm going to go out there and I'm not going to get a job and some man, you know, and so, and I said, uh, well, it, I don't know if it's, it's called reality. It's called <laughs> the way things are. Where is there a world where you can study drama and expect to make as much out of college as a, someone who studies mechanical engineering or chemical engineering? Those are some of the highest paying fields. I just said, change your major. Well, that was thought to be hate speech. I just thought it was common sense. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, the, the Swedish Official Statistics Bureau also calculate uh, the wage gap uh, in the traditional 23 cents on the dollar way. So we have 13% here now after years of years of, you know, uh, policy to uh, diminish the wage gap. And they even admit on their page that there is another way to do this calculation. But... Uh, it's not for us. <laughs> so, uh, so you know that it's not for us. It means like logic, reason, rules of evidence. Not for us. We're egalitarian Swedes. <laughs> well, as long as I everyone mean, you know can come to an agreement. And as long as you're a you know quite a prosperous society that can afford. I mean, I guess you know societies can afford to be slightly mad as long as they do it in the right areas. And you know, the Swedes have done this. Yeah, but I just wonder, I mean, does the average Swede believe this? Do they yes. believe that? Really? They're taught it in school. You should really come here and study us for a while. You're I more than that. welcome. What? I know, I know. I did come there once and give a talk. And I must say, the time, at the time I gave that talk, this might have been in uh, maybe 2000, 2002. And um, I don't know what I was thinking. I uh, usually when I talk to Europeans, especially French academics, they're always laughing at Americans. And even though the French are responsible for some of the more exotic gender theories, the French academics told me we don't really take it seriously here. So when I went to Sweden, I thought, okay, that's probably the same in Sweden. There are all these crazy theories, but they don't take it seriously. So I just gave my talk and I, I think it was around the war on boys. And I was talking about, children's, you know, differences in play and gender differences. And when I finished, there was sort of stunned silence. And then this gentleman of a certain age stood up in the front row and he said, 
Madam, you've been swearing in church. He had a little smile. He was pleased. <laughs> but I didn't realize I was swearing in church. Yes. And I, I did that. I did that. So I don't know if the Swedes want me back after that, but uh, I talked about male-female differences and cited all the evidence from, from uh, you know, we have evidence from animal studies. We have evidence from uh, studies of uh, men and women and the effects of hormones. And there is a, there are a group of girls who have a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. They're exposed to high levels of male hormones and in the uh, in utero before they're born and they are masculinized and they have the play patterns of little boys and you know we have we see this in animals but there's an example in humans and we have the entire anthropological record there's no society where the girls were the rough and tumblers and the boys were playing with dolls and nurturing play no we don't have any example of that so I spelled that out and that was apostasy Yes. I was, uh, uh, and they were so unhappy, and even the people that invited me were quite miserable. I think <laughs> I said those things. So. Well, the social cost of uh, deviating from the norm in Sweden, uh, and by the norm, I I don't mean uh, uh, traditional gender norms. I I mean um, official doctrine. Uh, the the cost the social cost is very high, so most people uh, don't dissent at all. Uh, how have you fared the costs uh, as a sort of a final question? How have you fared the costs? Do you think it's worth Because you've been ostracized and you've been co- name-called and, uh, and so on and so forth. Do you think it's worth it in the end? Well, in American society, most of the things I say the average person agrees with. So when I write an article or if, when I give a talk, most people agree. We're talking about a small coterie uh, in the United States of fairly, you know, very political feminists who have a, a who have a, this worldview. This is not the dominant view of the United States, at least not yet. People are trying, but it's hard to do in here. We're, we are not a consensus society. Everybody likes to argue, and uh, the feminists have just, you know, they're always very frustrated because common sense matters in the United States, and you've always got someone to speak up for it. My mother... And father, they're very liberal. They they would love Sweden, <laughs> but on these gender issues, my mother agrees with me. So I have a lot of people on the left because I'm still. I mean, I was raised by very liberal left wing parents, and it's still my in my DNA. And so, I, but I don't find I've been. You know, most as I said, most people think it's common sense. Hmm. So. Uh... What do you think I should do about it? How how do I... Because I've been trying to explain this to uh, the rest of my uh, compatriots for uh, years now. And um, I don't really care about the social cost because I'm very self-obsessed. Uh, that's a joke, Christina. I'm, you know, still a comedian. Uh, <laughs> um, but but I don't know how to go about it because it doesn't seem that anyone anything I say is taken seriously. So how how do I explain this? Well, I have a question, and the reason I didn't laugh is I was already trying to think about this. If so, you uh, Sweden was probably like the United States. It was once a patriarchal society, but then some little group was not part of the consensus, and they pushed back. So it's possible to organize and push back. The feminists did it. So I think that you need some kind of um, 
liberation movement uh, for mutual understanding. I don't know what to call it. Egalitarianism isn't the word, but just um, common sense and organize around that and, 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 and then free people to start talking about this. There was, there was a yeah. small group of about 12 men back in the early 2000s uh, who tr they, they called themselves equalists. Mm -hmm. um, back when I was young, I used to call myself an equity feminist, but I stopped because no one knew here what it was really. Uh, yeah. So, so, uh, but uh, this group was uh, the equalists were crushed by the mat matriarchy, uh, shunned from uh, from public life. So, I don't really know what to so do. I, 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 it's, it, how do marriages work there? Is every, every, everybody cooperates? I mean, obviously, women tend to be a little more obsessed with babies. Are they less obsessed in Sweden? More indifferent? They just go off to work and... Well, That's with it. with what they're taught in school, they're less interested in babies until they have babies, and then biology kicks in, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, concerning marriages, uh, what I know is that they work poorly, because seven, we have a 70% divorce rate in new marriages within the first four years, I think. Really? 70%? Yes. Well, that's high. Uh, well, ours may be that high now. I don't know. Not quite that high. No. But... Uh, That's very interesting. So there's uh, an economist named Catherine Hakim. At, she was at the London School of Economics. Or maybe she was in sociology. She did an analysis of women's preferences, and she studied Sweden. And what she said is about 20% of, and this was really true. It's true in America. We have good data on this from the Pew Research Center about women's preferences. About 20% of women are high-powered careerists. They, you know, even they care about their careers. That's the priority. Family is second. About 20% are family oriented. They care. They will not, they don't want to work. They'd like to have big families take care of children. They will only work if they have to. And they prefer not to. They want to get married and traditional. But that's a small proportion. And then 60%, Hakim calls adaptives. They go in and out. When they have children, they pull back a little. They look for fields where there's accommodation because they do want to have that balance and quite different results with men. Most men, you know, who wanted a job they liked and they wanted to work a lot and, and they weren't, they didn't have that same pull towards the home. So she finds a difference. I think she calls it uh, maybe preference economics, where you just try to organize a society around people's preferences. Sweden isn't doing that. It's organizing itself around the preferences of 20% of women. And not the, and the and the majority of women just have to go along with it. But that seems like bullying to me. <laughs> well, it, it is, and um, I think um, um, a society, as you say, can afford its insanity if it's a, a well-off society. Uh, and when it comes to gender, uh, we've gone off the cliff. We've just jumped into the ocean. And but but Swedes have done this with many areas for the last 50 years. I mean, there's been a lot of social engineering going on, and I think we sort of uh, we're heading for a perfect storm. Um, we'll but I see. Think, I think I think change starts with poets and comedians. So you're well placed to do this. <laughs> People, if you first start laughing at themselves, and then. The poets and the and the you know the, the artists come along, uh, they, they're usually there before the, the social scientists. So 
I would think if people could start laughing at themselves, that it might be the beginning of enlightenment and change. Let's hope you're right. Uh, <laughs> I watched one of your um, college performances with Milo and Crowder, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm going to quote you again. You said, PC is an effort to impose a political agenda without having to argue. Could you mm-hmm. please explain that to my listeners? Just Yes, a political correctness as practiced on American campuses, is a way for, again, it's an example of bullying. You just force people without having to persuade them because you automatically discount what they think because you don't respect their opinion. You don't allow diversity of opinion. And you simply, by fiat, create the language you want, create the behavior you want. And this is not a path to, this is not liberation. And I'm, as I said, I'm very libertarian and I, gay rights and trans rights and women's rights, women who want to defy all the stereotypes. I love that. I'm from Southern California. I was a flower child, a protester, a hippie. I'm still that way. And what I see now is that feminism is now the new authoritarianism. And when I was a kid and we would laugh at, you know, uptight conservatives who were telling us not to do the everything, you know, just no, 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 don't do anything. Now it's the feminists who are doing that and and the left in general. But but I think it's the power of the left is very much with these radical women. So that was what I meant by that comment, that it's it's coercion. I I think think you're right, because what I notice here in this country where we have it as a sort of a religion, a state religion, uh, I noticed that... uh, Feminism, feminists here, they say they want justice, but they don't really understand the concept of justice. What they want is revenge. And they're going to take that revenge on boys who had nothing to do with the bloody history of any uh, patriarchy anywhere. And, and when you war on boys, you're warring against your economic future. You're warring against your technological future. They do the heavy lifting in, the, in, in those fields. And um, they probably will continue to because... You know, I don't see women replacing men in the physics departments, the computer science departments, in the, I, I don't know about Sweden, but men in the United States earn about 90% of the patents. So, you know, you want to understand that not, everybody doesn't have to be the same. Women are doing critical things in critical areas and re- reforming the society, keeping the society um, more compassionate. I see that every day. You need both. And what they're doing is pretending the differences don't exist and then coercing people to go along with it. And as I said, you're a wealthy enough society, you can put up with it. But there is a toll. It may not be economic right now, but the toll in just human happiness and, uh, you know, these and the little boys having to put up with it and feeling that something's wrong with them from the beginning because of the disapproval of the way they want to play, the way they want to be yeah we'll see what happens as yeah it's going to be exciting interesting times as the chinese say um it's a curse i think (laughs) may you live in interesting times Uh, thanks (laughs) we certainly do and not to forget there is still hyper masculine societies i think china has with its excess of you know millions of men that are unattached because of their this policy of one child and they favor boys and then you have the, uh, you know, the threats from uh, Islamic terrorists and so forth. So these are 
these are pathologically masculine forces and you need, it's going to take strength and you're going to need, you know, uh, military and it can't be all done according to, you know, principles of full egalitarianism. It, it just, it, there's no example of that. Men show up and want to be in the armed forces much more than women and they want to be in combat much more than women. Even in the United States, they open up combat or they did a poll and asked how many women who are very much a minority in our armed services. It was something about of the women in already in the armed forces, only 7% wanted to be in combat. So that's a big difference. Now, maybe it's changed in Sweden. I'd like to see the data. I'd be surprised. Well, I don't know about patents, but I do know that um, when it comes to math and physics, girls uh, just a year ago or so uh, surpassed boys. So now boys aren't even best in math and physics anymore. The girls have have, uh, have passed. Uh, what, what, you know, what do you mean they passed them on an exam or on a, a test? Well, as on a well, a normal distribution of uh, you know uh, grade differences between men and women. Uh, women now I, are okay. I, I, I can, they can do that, but I would still want to know. Um, we get a lot of our innovators and um, you know math professors from the top, maybe top one percent or top five percent. I have never seen a society where women dominated that at the very, very extreme of the ability distribution. I have never seen a society where men were there when it came to literacy skills, cross culturally, uh, men at the at the high end of performance. You find more men in math and science. I'd be very surprised if that changed in Sweden. And if it did, it's so unusual, you almost wonder uh, if that was really the product of, of um, helping girls or did they actually just harm the boys? I'd have to know. You'd have to look into it. Yeah, and uh, I will. Thank you. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and when it comes to uh, the military, well, we practically don't have an army. You've been paying for our defense for the last 60 years. Thank you so much, United States of America. Um And uh, the feminist party in Sweden, well, they don't want an army. They say they don't want war. They want peace. Mm. Mm. Well, that'll work well with, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a world I've never seen. Uh, I mean, they have to come back to reality, don't they? But maybe not. Maybe in Sweden this can go on for a while. We'll, I mean, I, I hope it does in a way because no, no, <laughs> I just think a society has to be prepared economically and for its own survival. But sometimes I see things that are happening around me, and I think that maybe a, a sensitivity democracy is just doomed. You I know, it, it's it, it it can last for a while; it'll be good for you know people, and then but it can't you know. It, and it, you begin to see like the so few children are being born, and hardly replacement you know the low zero population, and we're not there in the United States. But I I think uh, maybe Sweden is certainly. These I've seen this in other European countries where there's just very few people are having babies. So the, again, you just have to look at the long-term viability of your society. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christina, for participating. Um, it has been a true pleasure, and I hope I get to talk to you again because I'm going to have more questions down the line. I think as I delve deeper and deeper into, uh, well, Swedish statistics. Now, I guess.
Yes. Because yes, at, le- yeah. at least you deserve an answer on the if there's still the math and physics geniuses uh, in our male population. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, it should. It, the, the best data we have is that it's about one. We're talking about freakishly gifted mathematicians, and there are girls that are like that, and I want them to to be represented. But it's one to four. And people said, oh, well, it used to be 1 to 14. It's moving, moving. That's right. It did move. It used to be 1 to 14. There were very few women showing up as math, you know, prodigies. They began to show up. But it, it, as of about 25 years ago, it just stopped at, at 1 to 4. And we've done everything. We've poured resources. We've done everything to create equality of genius. And it hasn't happened. Hmm. Uh, and well, partly, partly it's because the girls who are math geniuses tend also to be verbal geniuses. And they're interested in other things, and uh, so then they, they you can't be sure that a girl who is a math prodigy will become, you know, a math professor or an inventor or something. She may become a, you know, a, a doctor. She may become a writer. You don't know because she's it, and typically a boy who is a math prodigy doesn't have the comparable verbal skills, and so they tend to stay in the sciences. So again, it's not discrimination. It's just an an outcome of the way people are. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you so much, and I'll try to find an answer for you, I promise. And um, uh, we'll uh, stay in touch. Is there anything you want to tell uh, the Swedish audience before uh, we hang up? Uh, No, just um, I'll come back to Sweden one day soon. I'd like to meet you. I'd like to go to your, uh, go and see you on stage. I wouldn't understand it, but maybe I can have one of these, like, UN instant translators. (laughs) I I might hear what you're saying. I might force you to watch uh, one of my specials with subtitles. I'll send you a link. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. Um, thank you. Not at all. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Links to the things we talked about can be found under this episode on my Patreon, Aaron Flam. And while you're there, why not sponsor me? Or not. It's not mandatory. It's just a suggestion. Until next time, have a good time unit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.